When I got there, the first thing I did, I gave them a vision that said we would set the global standard for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because if you have an inclusive culture and a diverse group of employees, you can get anything done. I've lived it. There's a bottom line impact hmm. to having diversity and having equity in your organization and an inclusive culture. That was Sint Marshall, CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. Sint visited Stanford Graduate School of Business as part of View from the Top, a speaker series where students like me sit down to interview business leaders from around the world. I'm Sankalp Banerjee, an MBA student of the class of 2023. I had the pleasure of interviewing Sint. She spoke about maintaining authenticity, navigating personal and professional challenges as a leader, and transforming culture in organizations. You're listening to View from the Top, the podcast. It's an absolute privilege to have you here with us. It's so good to be here. Welcome to Stanford and welcome back to the Bay Area. Yes, it's so good to be in the Bay Area. And it's actually good to be on Stanford's campus. I am a Berkeley grad, but I wore red today. (laughs) For everybody, I wore red today. (laughs) We are so blessed here in the Bay Area to have just such fabulous, fabulous schools. So it's good to be here. It's good to be here. it's, it's, It's an honor. Well, before we dive in, I believe we were able to find some pictures of yours from over the years. Oh, my goodness. And I'd love to share some of them with the audience, if that's all right. Okay, you go right ahead. (laughs) (laughs) So this is you. Oh, Lord. In college. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. You're you're at Berkeley, as you mentioned. You're part of the cheerleading squad. Do you remember this picture? Yeah, I think we won the big game that year. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you beat Sanford, we'll, we'll move picture. right along. <laughs> I do remember that picture. Oh, my goodness. I should bring that afro back. I remember that picture. And this is you several decades later. Oh, my goodness. You're, yes. you're now the CEO of the Dallas Mavericks. Yes. You're still cheering. And somehow, yes. it, it looks to me like you've got just as much energy as yes. when you were 19. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. I do. What's I have a secret? lot of energy. Uh, just uh, taking care of myself, uh, enjoying life, uh, having a passion about what I do every day. I mean, when you have a passion about what you do every day, you just get up with energy. I mean, a lot of times people will ask the question, what keeps you up at night? Mm-hmm. I said, no, to me, the question is, what gets you up in the morning? Mm. It's about truly doing something that gets you up in the morning and you just wake up with energy. You work up with pa- wake up with passion. And so I'm just fired up all the time. I mean, so, people ask my husband and my kids, are like, does she like that all the time? My sister tell yes, I'm like this all the time. Yes, yes. Something for all of us to emulate, for sure. That's right. Think about what gets you up in the morning. That's the question you want to be able to answer. Since you have an incredible story, and there's so much that's transpired in between these two pictures. Yes. But I'd love to start at the very beginning. Okay. You grew up in Easter Hill, yes. not too far from here in Richmond, California. That's right. Um, And you grew up in what most people would describe to be very difficult circumstances. Um, Your mother at the time said that it's not about where you live, but how you live. Yes. Tell us about Easter Hill and what did your mother mean by that? Okay, I love that question. And uh, you've probably heard me say before that despite some of the things that uh, happened because we all face adversity, Mm -hmm. I actually believe I had a good childhood. And I believe some of the things that I saw and experienced are just things that people see and experience in their childhood. And so 
Uh, my parents moved from the from Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. So if you know your civil rights history, which I hope you do, especially with this being Black History Month, uh, there was a church in Birmingham, Alabama, the 16th Street uh, Baptist Church that was bombed where four little girls lost their lives. Mm -hmm. Actually, two others lost their lives afterwards. And then there was also the Bethel Street Baptist Church uh, where uh, Reverend Shuttlesworth, his uh, place there was bombed. Those churches are the churches that my mom uh, grew up in, okay. the churches that my mom attended. And so uh, she left in March of 1960 when I was three months old. Uh, because, so that was, I was the baby. And then Roz came after we came to, uh, stand up Roz and wave at everybody. <laughs> stand up and wave at everybody. <laughs> So she was the first one born out here in, uh, in California. Okay. Uh, so, and then I have a brother who was born after that. So six of us grew up in uh, the Easter Hill public housing uh, projects. Mm -hmm. And my mother stressed education. Yeah. Um, and, and that's when she would say, it's not where you live, it's how you live. Uh, zip code doesn't matter, education does. And so my father stressed it as well. His, mm -hmm. his line was, get your lesson, get your lesson. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know, take care of your, your educational business. And so we, so we grew up. Uh, knowing that that was important. Um, but I also had some things that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was 11 years old, I saw my father actually shoot a man in the head. Mm -hmm. And it was in self-defense uh, because this young man who we actually went to church with uh, approached our house. And so we were all in the back room uh, and my mother had us all in the back and you know, I wanted to be nosy, believe it or not, and Ross can attest to it, I was actually a fairly quiet kid. Yeah. We handled our business, but I was nosy. And so all this commotion was at the front door and I sneaked out because I wanted to know what was going on. Mm -hmm. And that's when my father in self-defense uh, shot this man because the silver pistol was pointed down uh, at me. And my father was gonna do whatever he had to do to defend his family. Uh, fortunately, it wasn't fatal, uh, but you can imagine the chaos that broke out Absolutely. in our family. And so we had to be sequestered in the house. But some of us said, we gotta go to school. And I said, I, I gotta go to school because I, I, I love school, yeah. I, just, I loved it. And so my mother had a uniformed police officer, Officer Darrell Prater, uh, to take me to school in the seventh grade. And he'd either uh, get on the bus with me or he'd put me in his police car like he never put the siren or anything on. Uh, but he got me to school. And in fact, when I got this job and they had all that detail, put all this detail on me, I said, you don't have to explain it to him. I had Secret Service when I was 11 years old. Okay. <laughs> I, know how this, I know how this stuff works. And so, and then four years later, uh, my parents got a divorce, uh, ugly, uh, bloody divorce. Um, my father broke my nose when I was 15 years old. Um, and so I went back to school with a brace on my nose. And mm -hmm. that's when three teachers and a principal uh, found out what was going on, really uh, embraced me, knew that my mom had a desire for all of her kids uh, to go to college. And so uh, Roz and I decided we were gonna be the first ones to graduate from a big four-year school mm -hmm. and make it happen. Others were doing you know, their own thing, but we had these big uh, dreams about uh, going to college. And so the rest is history. I ended up getting five full scholarships to the college of my choice yeah. and chose Berkeley um, because it was close to home. And normally what I say is not because it's the number one public institution in the <laughs> world. Okay, so public, okay, public. Uh, but it was, it was close to home. And one of my scholarships came with the car and all that. And so I wanted to uh, stay close to home uh, with my uh, younger brothers and sisters and my mom. Yeah. And so I got a great, great education. My zip code didn't matter. And so that's my desire these days for, uh, in our country, the zip code should not matter. That everyone should be afforded the great education that I was able to get, that Roz was able to get. My other cousin Roz here, 
Stand up, Cousin Ross. <laughs> it's so good to have these honeys. It's so good to have them here because usually I'm kind of in and out of California, and so I never get to see them, but somehow they caught me. So I'm so glad. I'm so glad they're here. So anyway, but we, we were blessed to get a great education. And so that's what my mother, what she meant about it's not where you live, it's how you live. It's about uh, handling your business, getting your education, having a set of values uh, that you stand on. I mean, we had a set of values that we stood on. Faith was important, yeah. uh, really important. I mean, she kept us in church. We were those kids on the front row. You know, we were in the front pew, and you have to behave. You yeah. know, your, your mother, my mother would look down from the choir stand, and you just couldn't act up, okay? And so we were raised uh, very disciplined and to be very respectful mm -hmm. uh, and to work hard. And that's what we saw. Even through adversity, uh, we were taught that we had to kind of make you through it. Yeah. And so we did. And so all that is a part of my foundation and the values that I was raised on and that I have are the values, honestly, that I bring into the workplace uh, wherever I go. Yeah. And you mentioned the scholarships and getting to go to the college of your choice. Yes. Before you enrolled, you had an interesting conversation with your boyfriend at the time. <laughs> yes. What did you tell him? <laughs> okay, so here's what I told him. Okay, so during my first week in college, I mean, it was a big deal for me. Yeah. Um, you know, going, uh, you know, stepping foot on Berkeley's campus, and I actually remember I started in the summer, and seeing everything big, the Sather Gate, I mean, just all that. And you know how it is when you step foot on a campus. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've all been there. It's just a whole different experience, right? And my first week in college, my boyfriend, I kind of had like two, but, you know, my distant boyfriend. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my distant boyfriend, he, you know, hey, until you put a ring on it, okay? And so... <laughs> So my distant boyfriend, he called and he says, I am three, he says, I changed schools, because he was in Fresno, so okay. in the Central Valley, in Fresno yeah. and Clovis. Mm -hmm. And he says, I've changed schools, I'm at San Francisco State University now, so that I can be close to you. Mm -hmm. Now this is my first week in college, now that sounds sweet, right? He says, so surprise, I'm across the bridge. I said, surprise boyfriend, uh, I, I, I got news for you, I got a surprise for you, I will call you when I graduate. So I saw him once. After that, he'd actually go, my sister can attest to it, he'd go and see my mom and tell my mom he was gonna marry me and all that. But I needed to handle my business. So mm -hmm. I, just, I just didn't want to be bogged down. And so what I told him is I didn't have time for some smooth talking cutie who wanted to play when I needed to study. <laughs> I wanted to enjoy my experience, but also handle my business. Mm. And so the day I graduated from college, I called him. You did exactly what you said you were gonna do. And so he couldn't appreciate that though. He said, oh. <laughs> I said, hi. I said, hi, this is Sid. I said, Kenny, this is Sid. He said, Sid who? I said, wait a minute, boy, don't act like you don't know me, okay? Because I know he had been keeping in contact with my mom and all that. I said, don't act like you don't know me. And I was fired up. I said, I just uh, graduated from uh, college and I'm so fired up. I got this job at the phone company who, where he was actually working at the time and his dad actually retired from there. Uh, and I, I was just fired up about my future, my family's future, all that. And he said, who is this again? I said, don't act like you don't know who I am. My mom is having a party at 6 o'clock. Uh, she's still there in Easter Hill, but she's going to be getting out, be at the party, 6 o'clock. And he said he couldn't come to the party because he was engaged. Hmm. That's the wrong answer. <laughs> okay? And so he says, I haven't talked to you in almost four years. And uh -huh. I said, well, I kept my end of the bargain. I told you I was going to call you when I graduated. I just graduated at 2 o'clock. It's 3 o'clock. Like, you waited an hour. <laughs> okay? So in his mind, it's four years. In my mind, it's an hour. I did what I said I was going to do. Well, anyway, 
uh, on April the 30th of this year, I will be married to that boy for 40 years. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He came to Just the party. incredible. He came to the party. So whenever we move our kids into college or one of our nieces or nephews, uh, after we move them all in, I got my whole mommy routine where I decorate the dorm rooms and do all that. And so right before we leave, he says, uh, I think there's a phone call that you're supposed to make. This is where you take your boyfriend and girlfriend and put them on hold until you graduate. So, yes. I guess patience truly is a virtue. It really is. Yeah. I tell him all the time he was that close to missing out on his blessing. I mean, like, <laughs> that close, that close, but he didn't. So you graduate from Berkeley. Yes. I believe you had 13 job offers. You did your homework. <laughs> you did your homework. You're good. You are good. <laughs> And, and out of all these options, you chose AT&T, where you started at age 21, yes. and you stayed and, and reached some of the highest levels of the organization. At the very beginning, though, what did you want from your career? What was most important to you? Okay, so when I was uh, interviewing on campus, I had two criteria, like only two. I said I wanted the job that paid me the most money. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I wouldn't advise that, but that's kind of where I was. <laughs> a, long, a long time ago, I want the job that pays me the most money. And back then, they paid me $16,200 a year. Okay, okay. So that was a really long time ago. Yeah. So I want the job that paid me the most money, but also a job where I could be the boss at 21 years old. And it wasn't really about being the boss. It was about leading people and serving people. Okay. Uh, because I had had some leadership experience just, you know, in, in life activities and all that. Yeah. But I wanted a job where I could truly serve people. And so AT&T had a fast track management program mm -hmm. and I started out supervising and y'all don't know anything about this. I'm trying to look around at the ages in here. Back in the day when you would dial zero to actually, and that was like not even cell phones, okay, <laughs> to get your calls uh, made. And so I supervised those operators in San Francisco. Oh, okay. And so I worked the night shift because I was, I, I like night classes and evening classes. I didn't like to get, I'm not a morning person. And that's why the timing of this is perfect. Mm -hmm. Like if this was the breakfast, it was like, mm. but this is perfect. And so I'm a night person. And so I supervised these operators mm -hmm. and it was great. To this day, those operators and the union employees, they taught me just about everything I know about my leadership, leadership philosophy mm -hmm. to this day. They taught me how to truly serve, how to walk into a place when you really don't know anything. And I was very honest. And I walked in, I said, okay, it's my first job. I don't know anything. And they're laughing like, we know you don't know anything. Okay, we already know that. But I told them I was willing to learn and that I knew my job was to serve them okay. and to make their lives better, personally and professionally. And so they put me through the paces. They had all a list of things that they had wanted to do uh, and management wouldn't listen to them. So here they had this 21-year-old and they would give me the list and say, sit, let's try this. Let's try that. And so I'm 21 years old. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. Mm -hmm. And then I would go to my boss and she said, oh, no, we can't do this. So this one uh, project with this one policy in particular, I wanted to change. And these operators had been working on it for years. And to me, it was kind of like an inhumane policy where they had to sign up to go to the bathroom, all kind of stuff. Because of course, you know, you're trying to, you know, look at call volumes and traffic. And so they said, no, we want the, we want the, the company to trust us. Okay. And here's how we, want to, how, how we want to do this. So they laid it all out. I said, okay. And so I convinced my boss to let us try it. Wow. And she didn't want to try it, but we did. Our results went from the worst in the company, literally to the best in the company. 
because we listened to the people who were closest to the work and they knew we trusted them, they held each other accountable, mm -hmm. and we changed the whole system for the company actually across the United States. So it's developing that trust while maintaining your commitment to service. Well, yeah, you have to serve them. When you walk into a, a job, yes, you're the boss, mm -hmm. but all that means is you are here to serve these people. And so I have a leadership philosophy that's based on three L's. And I believe as a leader, if I want to truly be effective, I only need to do three things. And, that, and I need to do them extremely well. Mm -hmm. Listen to the people, learn from the people, and love the people. And truly love them as people. Not as employees, not as AT&T employees, not as a Mavs employee, not where you know, you, people walk into a phone booth and then they put on a cape and they have a big T or M on their chest. That's not who I want. Mm -hmm. The person who gets up out of bed in the morning, the issues they have, the problems they have, the backgrounds they have, the dreams they have, all of that is what I want to walk into my doors. And when that person walks into my doors, I need to be able to meet them where they are mm -hmm. and really serve them. And that means I need to really love them for who they are. Not try to change them to be somebody else, but accept that person. I need to listen to them. When I first got to the Mavs, I spent I, literally 90 days, I met with every single employee wow. in the organization, every single employee. And I would start off with the same question. I'd say, okay, not a question, a statement. I said, tell me about yourself. Like, give me your whole life story. Mm -hmm. And undoubtedly, they would start off and say, oh, this is my fifth season at the Mavs, or this is my seventh season at the Mavs. I said, were you born here? <laughs> like, I want your life story. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important is I want to know who's sitting in front of me. And then we talk about all kind of math stuff. And then I said, okay, uh, tell me where you see yourself five years from now, personally and professionally. Mm. Because I really believe my job as a leader and our job as an executive leadership team is to help you get there, personally and professionally. We have to invest in you. Yeah. But you don't know that if you don't listen to people and truly let them talk. And then you have to learn about their job, mm. learn about what they do. When I was at AT&T, I went to pole climbing school. The, the installers were probably four levels below me, but I went to pole climbing school because I wanted to be able to appreciate what they were going through every day so I could really serve them and give them what they needed. So you listen to the people, learn from the people, and really love them as people, not as employees. That's so my secret. Yeah, and you use those leadership principles to really seek advancement at AT&T, but the process of advancement wasn't always easy. I think in your book, you mentioned a conversation where you're up for promotion to the officer level at AT&T, and your boss is calling to congratulate you, but there's some conditions attached and maybe even some problems with your name. Man, you really did do your homework, <laughs> okay? Yes. Okay, uh, so first of all, I never, I, uh, I turned down four promotions okay. in my career because either there was one reason or another, and usually it was because there was something else I wanted to learn about the company. Uh, after my first job with these operators, I actually got uh, a job offer. They wanted me to be, uh, to replace my boss. She was uh, getting ready to retire and they wanted me to be the second level manager. I turned that down because here I am, you know, 22, 23 years old. Hmm. I plan to have a career with this company. I wanna know more than just operator services. I mean, I'm working in a technical company and so I ended up taking a job as a network engineer because I wanted to know about the company. So it was a lateral move. Mm -hmm. But then I had a boss tell me, he says, okay, you can't just keep accepting lateral moves. You gotta start moving up, especially I was on this fast track uh, management program. Uh, so I never sought 
uh, advancement. I never, I mean, I knew I was supposed to get to director level within five years. My family was pulling for me. Everybody kind of wanted it to happen. Yeah. And so once that happened, I was like, okay, I just want to enjoy my career. But things, positive things kept happening because I was actually delivering the goods, leading people, and so good things were happening. So when I finally get this call, uh, 25 years into it, to be an officer, mm -hmm. I just walked in the house. My boss called and she said, congratulations. The company just uh, named you, the board just elected you to be an officer of the corporation. Mm -hmm. And I said, an officer of the corporation, I mean, I knew what it was. I was already in a big VP job in my San Francisco office down on uh, New Montgomery Street. And so I was already doing great, delivering a lot of uh, good policy for the company and just doing some great things. And so it, it actually caught me off guard because I, did, I wasn't trying to do it. Mm. And so my husband is in the background and he's smiling and I said, okay, and she says, okay, so let me, let me give you some advice. Let me tell you some things that I want. And she said, I just left a magazine on your desk, so when you get back to work, you'll see a magazine. She said, I think it was a Black Enterprise magazine. She said, there are all these black people on the cover. They're wearing white and the ladies have short hair, so I think you will look great in white and I think you will look great in a short haircut. And she starts describing this haircut. And I'm thinking, what does this have to do with the job? But she, in her mind, was coaching me and giving me some you know, ideas on how to step into this officer role. Then she said, and I, you're going to have to change your name. You can't be sent. Hmm. No sent. You have to be Cindy or Cynthia, because nobody knows what a sent is. Nobody ever heard of that. Wow. Well, I heard of it. I've been sent my whole life. <laughs> and, and, mo and most of the people that I grew up with Black people named Cynthia, with the exception of my sister had a friend named Cindy Holloway. That was the only black Cindy I knew, okay? So I knew people as sent, but she didn't. So she wanted me to change my name. And so then she said, and you know, people are in your office all the time because you know, you're, that's a place where people just wanna come. They feel like they can talk to you and all that. You're going to have to stop talking to all these people. And so she, and then you know, of course, what she wanted me to wear. So she literally just started giving me this whole picture that was not me. Now, coaching is one thing because we're all, you know, we all need to be coached because sometimes you're in environments that are new, the culture is new, all that. You need to know how to show up. But then when you start talking like this, it's getting kind of crazy. But here's where it kind of went over the edge. She says, and you have to stop using the word blessed. You have to use the word lucky. Hmm. I said, well, what if I don't think I'm lucky? And she says, well, I mean, yeah, I said, what if I don't think I'm lucky? Did I think I'm blessed? She goes, no, no, no. No churchy kind of words. You, you can't do any of that. Wow. And that's when I said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. I said, I need you to tell, help me figure out how to tell the company no, that I'm not going to accept this officer promotion because my sense is you are fundamentally trying to change who I am. Hmm. And you know what? When my first week in the company, I had a boss who made me get rid of my red shoes and my braids, and I came home and had to stay up all night with my family taking down my braids. And here it is some 19, 20 years later, and this is still going on. But the difference is I'm a different person. Hmm. And so I'm not going to accept this. And so she helped me come up with the words because my biggest concern is I don't want to lose my current job. Hmm. Like I got a big job and I'm doing great. I'm taking care of my family. So I don't want to lose my current job, but I'm not going to accept this because you're asking me to be somebody else. So she came up with the words. And so she said, okay, I agree with you, because I guess I wasn't sophisticated enough or something, I don't know. Hmm. And so, but pretty much that's, I mean, that's what she was saying. And so um, that's where I left it. And then a few minutes later, her boss called me, and then the chairman of AT&T, Ed Whitaker, called me. And he started off, he said, sent, 
And he, <laughs> and he put the emphasis on the T. And he said, girl, let's start this all over again. I heard what happened. And he went and described me to a T. And he said, that is the person who we just promoted to be an officer. That is the person who we want to walk in the doors tomorrow. Hmm. You don't need to change a thing. He said, will you accept the offer to be an officer of this corporation? And I said, absolutely. And it was funny because my husband was in the background hearing this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And when she was telling me to change my hair and all this, and he's like, I got a barber. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I mean, so like, like he's in the background trying to make it happen. He's like, he's like, whatever they are asking you to do, like you need to do it. And at some point, you have to draw a line. Mm. You have to know who you are, what you stand for. And I just said no. So he didn't like that. But of course, it ended up, it ended up being great. And it was the point in my career where words matter. When mm -hmm. you are a leader, words matter. And his words actually made me finally say, I can be who I am. I can tell stories that normally I wouldn't tell. I can open up and be exactly who I am. And that actually has served me well uh, since then. That's an incredible story and so heartening to hear that you can maintain your authenticity while still achieving your, your career goals, just, just truly inspirational. Well, you have to because, and, here's, and this is how I am with my employees, the people who are delivering all those results mm -hmm. and the people who are making it happen, I mean, because people deliver results, they just don't like happen. So the people who are doing that, those are the people that you're promoting and those are the people who you want to continue uh, to give to your organization, so why try to change them? Mm -hmm. And that's what diversity is all about. You want all of those differences around the table. You're not trying to create all these people who look alike, who are wearing white with short hair, saying lucky. Yeah, you're not trying to do that. <laughs> so you're able to stick to your conviction your, and your principles. You're thriving in your career. Yes. Um, you become president of AT&T in North Carolina. Uh, then comes a day in 2010, I believe the day before New Year's Eve, and uh, you you, you, you have a lot of detail in your book. <laughs> Man, you're kind of scaring me, okay? <laughs> you are kind of scaring me. Where are you getting all this from? Who are you talking to? Because see, now I'm wondering, what in the world? Now he, at some point, he's going to say something that I think nobody knows. Okay? <laughs> this is about say, to be really like a big revelation to the world. <laughs> you've got an incredible book, and I had the opportunity to read it. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's a day before New Year's Eve. Uh, you receive a call from a doctor at this point. Yes. Um, what's your first reaction? Oh, I just couldn't believe it. I, um, I was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer, mm -hmm. uh, one lymph node before stage four. And it was actually as a result of being in a corporate athlete program in May of that year. Okay. And it, it was an assessment of your physical, mental, emotional health, what I actually refer to as PMS physical, mental, spiritual health, and we need to pay attention to all of it all the time, but I wasn't. And so in this uh, assessment, they ask you to pick one thing that you would do that uh, would help you have better results. And so mine was the physical category because the mental category was great, spiritual category was great, had some work to do on physical. I didn't think I had as much work to do as I thought because I had already stopped eating my fried chicken, I had already stopped eating my ding-dongs. I mean, I just said I wanted to get healthy, okay. right? And I was an athlete growing up, I ran track and all that, and so I just wanted to be healthy, so I focused on that. So the one thing that I picked that I would do is respond to a referral slip that had been given to me the previous year. My doctor had given me a referral slip to get a colonoscopy. Mm. 
And I took that referral slip and I put it on my night nightstand. And honestly, I can admit, I never planned on doing anything with it. Because I'm feeling pretty good, I'm healthy. I'm, at that time, I was 49. I said, I don't, I don't really need to do anything with this. And so I didn't. So the one thing I committed to as a result of this class and this assessment, because they're all pressing us, is all the officers, right? They're pressing us to do one thing. And I said, okay, I will go and get the colonoscopy. So I'll take that referral slip off my nightstand, I'll do that. They gave us these accountability buddies. So I had this one, Frank Jules, one of my buddies out of New Jersey. He'd call me every morning, and for some reason, he'd always catch me going through the Starbucks line. And he'd call and say, hey girl, you get that thing done? You get that thing done? And I said, no, stop calling me, I haven't yet. So <laughs> finally, finally I scheduled my colonoscopy, and I ended up having it the day before my 51st birthday. Mm -hmm. So technically, I was in compliance. I was 50 years old, my last day of being 50, but I had that referral slip. I had received it quite a few months before then. And it came back, uh, you know, it came back basically saying, my doctor said, get to a surgeon. Hmm. And so I went to a surgeon. He told me, you know, I had this mass. He said, it didn't look like cancer, so don't worry about it. We were coming back home to California for the holidays. He said, don't cancel your trip. But you know what? You have to follow your instincts and nobody's gonna advocate for your health the way you can. Hmm. And I told him, I said, well, just looking at this, honestly, I feel like this tumor is growing like by the second. I need surgery. And I sat in his office on a Friday afternoon, and I sat there for an hour and a half because he said he could not do surgery. It wasn't urgent. And this was just his professional opinion. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a, he's a fabulous surgeon. Yeah. But in his professional opinion, we could wait. And I just said, I don't feel like I can wait. And so, and so he asked my husband, he says, is she gonna leave here, take a no for an answer? He goes, my husband said, mm -mm. no, you're gonna have to find somewhere to have surgery. So they found somewhere that Monday morning, I ended up having surgery. And before I left the hospital, he actually said, um, don't worry about the pathology report. Hmm. And I said, okay, when is it coming out? And so he finally ended up calling me, and I had to track him down for five days. He finally ended up calling me the day literally the day before New Year's Eve. And he said, are you sitting down? I have news, it's bad, and it's significant. And I can just, I mean, I remember those words like it was yesterday. And he told me that I had cancer. Hmm. And that um, I didn't have a day to spare, and that I needed to get to an oncologist. And I, could, I, I just couldn't believe it. It was really, it was the only time in my life, and I've gone through a lot in terms of miscarriages, uh, the death of my daughter, my husband was brain damaged. I mean, I've, I've gone through some things. This was an out-of-body experience. Hmm. I really didn't think he was talking to me. And so my husband came over, I cried and all that, but then I called my mother. Because that's just what you do. Yeah. I called my mother. And so she's here in the Bay Area, and I told her I had cancer. And she said, okay, she said, this is for his glory. God will get the glory out of this. You have a high-profile job. You're not gonna die. Everybody's gonna be able to see that you've come through this. It's gonna be used for a positive story and you will tell this story one day. I didn't wanna hear any of that because I was trying to have a pity party mm. because I had just been told that I had cancer and the prognosis was not a good one, mm. but she wouldn't go there and pretty much told me that I had been chosen for this. And so I ended up going through chemotherapy. Uh, everybody kind of rallied around me, my family, my work family, uh, and did what we needed to do. Uh, it was brutal. Uh, I uh, named my chemo pump Winston from the movie when Stella got a groove, how Stella got a groove back and her 
Her boyfriend was Winston, so I named my pump Winston, because I was like, <laughs> gotta give me my groove back. But I had a positive attitude and decided I would focus on the can in cancer. Mm. And it was great because my work family from all across AT&T uh, showed up for me. I was in North Carolina, but of course had spent 25 years and, and grew up here. Uh, just people everywhere uh, showed up. Uh, my church family, uh, my, you know, my family. Mm -hmm. It was an experience that really proved to me why my theme song in life is so important. My theme song in life is Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Y'all kind of young, but have y'all ever heard that song? Yeah. <laughs> and mine is the upbeat Tammy Terrell Marvin Gaye version. Except I like the Michael McDonald version too, because diversity and inclusion, so I like the white man's version too, okay? <laughs> so I like the black version, I like the white version, okay? The Diana Ross version kind of slow for me, but so that's my, that's my theme song, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, because of the words, okay? Mm -hmm. And it basically says whatever it is, like, you can call me, hmm. and we need to be there for each other. And so I sing it all the time because that's the story of my life. We always show up for each other. There's nothing we can't uh, accomplish, no mountain that's too high for us. But this time in my life, when I got cancer, that's when that song really became hmm. life to me. It really became life. You mentioned being chosen for this journey in that, in that conversation with your mother. Yes. And perhaps because you were chosen, you also felt a sense of responsibility towards others. Yes. Um, I think that sense of responsibility really shines through in some letters that you wrote to your employees that's in your book as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, with, yes. With your permission, I'd love to read a few lines uh, from one of the letters. Oh, that'd be wonderful. Amazing. You do, you, this is like the best interview. Like, <laughs> like you prepared, I love this. <laughs> you are ready to do even bigger, bigger things in life. We'll have to, we'll have to talk because I'm always hiring. There's nothing. <laughs> And you are from Dallas. That's right. They'd That's love right. to have you back home. Your parents <laughs> love to have you back home. And you're from Dallas. Mm -hmm. Out of Dallas. We, we have some Texans back in the audience. Mm -hmm. We have some Texans in the audience. Stand up, Texans. <laughs> Stand up, Texans. Yes, yes, yes. Everybody come back home. We need help. <laughs> so you have this, this letter that you're, you're sending to all of your employees just one week after your cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. You say... Some of you have probably heard by now that I was diagnosed last week with colon cancer. I will definitely beat this. I am uniquely equipped for this battle. I have faith, good common sense, a detail-oriented skill set, aggressiveness, a great employer and health plan, wonderful family and friends, and that includes all of you. I will have just one more awesome testimony when this is all over and my three teenagers and husband will have a lot more faith in God. Thanks in advance for your love, prayer, and support. This will indeed be a happy new year. Yes, indeed. And I'm cancer-free. <sighs> yes, indeed. Wow. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. Yes. This just strikes me. Every time I read it, this is, this is so striking. And what shines through is not only your incredible optimism, but also your leadership at a, at a very difficult time. Where do you get this optimism from, and how do you use it to inspire other people? I think it's naturally in my spirit. Yeah. Uh, I saw it with my mother. Uh, I saw her go through a lot, but always having hope and being optimistic. Uh, my sister would just tell you, it's just who we are. I think it's rooted, honestly, in scripture. Um, I try to live my life by Jeremiah 29 and 11, 
It says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans mm -hmm. to prosper and not harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. So I just truly believe there is a wonderful, wonderful plan uh, for my life. I believe there's a wonderful plan uh, for your life and that it's all goodness and greatness that we need to focus on. And yes, we will have bad things happen. I often say sometimes the light at the end of the tunnel is a train. Hmm. Bad things do happen to good people. Sometimes that light that you see is a train coming to roll you over. But there's always, I believe there's always a hand that's going to get you back up because sometimes you can't get up by yourself. Mm -hmm. So I just look for that hand to get up and I look for that light that is coming at me like a train, but then I know there's another one coming mm -hmm. and it's usually attached to somebody who's going to help me. And then I often think about, I need to be that light for somebody. I need to be the one to make sure that they get up. And so I, I'm wired that way. I am just wired to think that the glass is not just half full, but it is overflowing. Hmm. And so my husband is wired just the opposite. He's like, the glass is half empty. I'm like, boy, please, okay? <laughs> the glass is half full. In fact, it's overflowing and you gotta go and get it. And so that has worked for me for 63 years and I don't, I don't think I'm gonna change. I absolutely love that. And you apply these same principles to the workplace as well. Yes. You're able yes. to advance to the senior vice president level at AT&T. You become chief diversity officer. You become an expert, really, in organizational culture. Yes. What makes you so passionate about culture, Sint? And uh, for all the future leaders in the audience, how should we be thinking about building the right culture? It's all about people. It is truly about people. And, and, and culture is, is, is just very simple. In fact, the, I, saw, I read something last night that basically said, you know when you, what kind of culture you have mm -hmm. by how your employees are feeling on Sunday night when they think about getting ready to go back to work on Monday morning. I, I literally just, just read that. And so when I got to the Mavs, it was, it was a bad situation. Mm. Uh, when I got that call from Mark Cuban, who I did not know, by the way, when he called me. I mean, I just, my husband had to make me call him back. Because, I mean, I, people laugh. I, he, I didn't know him. He didn't know me. Okay, but he had gotten my name. He had a situation where he needed to really change his organization. Mm -hmm. And so somehow I had built that reputation from working, from helping AT&T. Literally, I led the effort to get us, to get AT&T and the great, uh, Fortune's Great Place to Work list, 100 Best Places to Work list for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. And it was about pulling people together giving them a vision, so that's what I did at the Mavs. Hmm. When I got there, the first thing I did, I gave them a vision that said we would set the global standard for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I went there because I truly believe if you have an inclusive culture and a diverse group of employees, you can get anything done. I mean, hmm. it really is, McKinsey gives the business case, others give it as well, I've lived it. There's a bottom line impact hmm. to having diversity and having equity in your organization and an inclusive culture. And then I laid out a set of values because culture too is about having a foundation, having a common set of values that embrace people and that give us kind of a, a focus on where we wanna go, how we want to do business. And our values at the MAV spell crafts, character, respect, authenticity, fairness, teamwork and safety, both physical and emotional safety. And then we laid out our 100-day plan and made it real clear that we are going to be a place of zero tolerance 
for inappropriate behavior, misconduct, false allegations and all that, but we were gonna have an express agenda for women because when I got to the Mavs, there were zero women in permanent leadership positions and zero people of color. Hmm. I don't know how you run an organization like that and you don't tap into the richness of the diversity that's there. So within 90 days, we were 50% women around my table and 50% people of color. Wow. I'm like, let's just go ahead and get this thing laid out so we can be successful. But I want to drive a message around an inclusive culture. Hmm. And it's all about making sure that every voice matters and everybody belongs. And that is our workplace promise. Araceli is down there. She's on our team stand, Araceli. She's absolutely <laughs> amazing. And so we, we work together. We work together to make sure that we deliver on that leadership promise of every voice matters and everybody belongs. But the tone is set at the top. Mm. You can't ask all your employee resource groups and your people uh, at the lower levels to uh, literally set that tone. You have to set the tone and then everybody embraces that and then we're all responsible for the culture of the organization. But you have to make it real clear and you have to demonstrate it, you have to role model it. And that's what I try to do. I don't get it perfect every day, mm -hmm. but that's what I try to do. So you were brought into the Mavs to really drive change. Yes. Uh, but change often you know, comes with resistance. Yes. So tell us about some of the challenges you faced when you were trying to drive change as a new CEO. Well, after I, you know, we, we laid out this 100-day plan, and the 100-day plan had 200 initiatives. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted everybody to kind of rally around them. Obviously, I knew I would have to make some leadership changes, diversify the team, exit some people who had engaged in misconduct or just, you know, didn't fit anymore, et cetera. Um, so I thought I had done all that. And then all of a sudden, I realized there was one group in particular, they weren't responding to our initiatives, and they mm -hmm. weren't in on the meetings. I mean, everybody just fired up about the things we needed to do. And so then they ended up telling me that their boss had told them not to engage, not to listen to me, oh. that I was just a PR stunt and I would be gone in 90 days. Wow. I'd be five years at the end of this month and he was gone in 90 days. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't have people around that absolutely are fighting against the culture. Mm. Now it's one thing, you know, you gotta bring, bring people along and sometimes they come along slowly. But when you have somebody who's totally resistant and who thinks bad behavior is okay, and then they wanna keep people down so their people can't flourish, you're doing a disservice to, the peop to everybody else. Now, when I have to let somebody go, that is the hardest thing. I mean, it's the hardest thing because you're thinking about their livelihood, if they have kids and all that. But in my 40, I guess, two years now of being a professional, I have never fired anyone. Mm they opt out. They decide that they don't want to work in a certain place. They decide that they don't want the culture. And so we had some people who made a decision that they didn't want it. And for the sake of everybody else there, you're talking about loving the people, I have to ask myself, do I love them enough to put them out of their misery? Because they, gotta, they want to engage, but they got to respond to this guy. Hmm. And so we had to let him go. And so we had a few, thing, we had a few items like that, but for the most part, we had people who wanted to come along. They wanted to work in a whole different kind of environment. And so that's what we're doing. That's so it's been good. That's incredible. And, and your ability to bring people along while also setting the vision is, uh, re really stands out. Since you've had an incredible career. You've been able to drive impact in so many different roles. Yes. What's one thing you really want to be remembered for? I often tell my kids, um, 
like if we go to a funeral or something, I tell them I only want one thing written about me and said about me when I leave. And I plan on being here until I'm 102. <laughs> because I said I got cancer at 51, so that was my midlife crisis. <laughs> so I plan on being here until 102. But when I'm 102 and I'm laid out, I want them to write, she left it better than she found it. That's all I want to do, is walk into a place and know that there are people who literally, their lives have changed, that they are better because they met me, that they are better because I did something in their life. I actually got a letter from an, uh, from an employee at our American Airlines Center the other day, and it actually caught me off guard. I, I got this, and I'm thinking, okay, I don't know if this is a complaint. I don't know what this is, and I'm actually walking through my house after our game went off mm -hmm. television, and I had to just stand there and catch myself for about 10 minutes because this woman had read my book. And she goes through a full page of all these horrible things, like horrible things that had gone on in her life and how she had given up. And then she said, I read your book. And that day, my life changed. I'm gonna live, and then she starts describing all this great stuff that's happening, and her mindset had changed. She said, I want you to know it's because I read your book. You literally just saved my life. I said, wow, I wrote the book to touch one person. Hmm. That was the person. And so that's all I want to do is just leave it better. I, want, I, don't, I don't care about being famous and all that. I'm, I'm kind of famous now, but. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't really like care about all that. Araceli will tell you, when I, even when I get requests, and uh, it was said earlier, I could probably do this every day but I try to pick the things that truly would have impact. That's why this invitation was so special to me. Hmm. I mean, to be able to come in to the Stanford Graduate School of Business, where I actually, when I was a recruiter at AT&T, this was one of my uh, schools. Oh, okay. Uh, it's my top school that I'd come and recruit at. And to be able to touch the lives of people who are already accomplished, but who are here so you can learn even more, so you can make an even bigger difference uh, in the world. Uh, to be able to just say something, whether it's the three L's or just something uh, to help you on your journey. That's why I said yes to this. That's all I want to do is leave it better than I found it. Well, we're delighted you accepted. Uh, your leadership, authenticity, and just optimism really, really, really shines through for all Thank of us. You. Uh, should we take a few questions from the audience? I would love that. Y'all got questions for me? <laughs> I would love that. Maybe we have one question over here. Hi, Sin. Thank you for being here. My name is Kareem, and I'm a second-year MBA student. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. You're about to get out of here, huh? It gets better. Uh, I'm a huge Mavs fan. Go Mavs! Go Mavs. I, I played basketball professionally before business school. Tried to develop a fadeaway shot like Dirk's. Never really managed to do that. He's really good. My question for you is also about people. I truly admire what you did for the organization and Thank hope you. that you can lead us to a championship soon. Yeah. Um, I'm just very curious to hear about your approach to building consensus, especially when you work in a space where you have to deal with very special, unique, and strong personalities. Oh, I love that. I love that question. Thank you, and thank you for thank you. your loyalty to the map. <laughs> you, know, you know, we're in Sacramento tonight and tomorrow night, so if you want to come, you just let me know. I got connections. <laughs> there you go. I got it like that. Yes, 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 yes. The, what I try to do, the way I try to build consensus is to, first of all, you need clarity. You need true clarity around what is the problem. 
what's the issue you're trying to solve? So often we are, the, the, the things are muddy. And so you're talking about one thing, I'm talking about something else, you're talking about something else. So I like to get my team in a room and say, okay, what is the issue? Where are we trying to go? What are we truly trying to solve? And why are we trying to solve this? I'm a big why person. I will ask why 10 times. Why are we trying to solve this? Because sometimes you're addressing something that actually doesn't even matter. And we don't have time for that. We have to set priorities. We're, we're not gonna be fighting over something that doesn't even matter, something we shouldn't even be talking about. So once we get through all that and realize it is important and we have real clear direction on where we're trying to get to, then I get everybody's opinion. And I'm not one of these people where I'm about just the group talk or the loudest voice. I literally, my team will tell you, our Sally will tell you, I go around the table because I notice who's quiet. And so I'll go around the table and say, okay, so let me hear from you. Let me hear from you. Let me hear from you. And if you say, oh, Sin, I don't really have an opinion. Yes, you do. <laughs> you, you work here. Everybody has an opinion. I don't want you to take it home. I don't want you to give it to anybody else. I need you to give it to us. And so we'll go around and then, and it's not even about process of elimination. It's not about majority rules. It's about, and then, and then we bounce everything up. We'll have some, you know, some solutions, right? And then we bounce them up against our values. Every decision we make, we bounce it up against crafts. What does it mean from a character standpoint? Does it respect the people involved? Does it allow them to be uh, themselves? Is it fair? And fairness, and like equality and equity, fairness is not sameness. Sameness is equality. Fairness is about equity. Are we meeting people where they are? So we take them through that whole thing, teamwork, says we do all that, and then we make a decision. What's best for the organization? Not for any particular in individual. What is best for the organization? Sometimes I'll lose. Hmm. I'll lose, or I, I will have an aha moment. And when I have my aha moment, I make sure my team members know that. I say, okay, well, it sounds like Scent was wrong on that one. And then I'll, and then I'll go to whoever kind of like put the issue out there that gave me the aha moment, and I'll say, thanks for sharing that, because I didn't see it that way. Hmm. I mean, I really thought whatever, whatever, whatever. And then other people will start to do the same. So then by everybody still talking about it, because you have to even talk, you know, you're taught not to talk, you are taught not to talk past the sale. When you're trying to build consensus, sometimes you do need to keep talking, because you need to get buy-in. People need to understand kind of how you got there. And then I have a rule, especially in my leadership team, we all walk out. We walk out together. You don't walk out and say, well, I still don't buy in. No, you're part of this leadership team. Mm -hmm. We talked it out, and we think we made the best decision for the organization. That's how we drive consensus. A lot of why, and we test it against our values, and we talk about it even when we've decided to make sure we get ownership. Does that help? I will tell you how I got to be, and it's very quick, uh, the Chief Diversity Officer at AT&T. I ran businesses, AT&T North Carolina, I mean, I, when I was here, I ran businesses for AT&T. Uh, and I've worked in technical and non-technical spaces, line and staff. So I was blessed to have 15 different jobs, 13,088 days. I'm a numbers person, so I know exactly how long <laughs> I was there. So I've worked all over the place. My very last job in the company was the Senior Vice President of Human Resources when our chairman asked me to move from North Carolina to Dallas because we had had all these mergers and so then we had all these subcultures and he was on a mission to create a great place to work and bring all these subcultures together into one culture. And so he asked me to be a part of that and there were about a few of us around the country that he brought to Dallas. So I came there with no experience, so to speak, around diversity, equity and inclusion. But to your point, I actually did have a lot of experience 
because my whole career I had been a champion just because I think a lot of you know who I am mm -hmm. um, and just what I really care about and so the company actually recognized that and so when I got in the SVP HR job there was a chief diversity officer who sat right in the suite next to me in her office and so when she moved on to another job and they were looking for a replacement they came to me and basically said we need you to do two jobs and I said what and, and then they explained to me why they wanted me to be the chief diversity officer it worked out to not they had to pay a sister okay you want me to <laughs> you want me to do two jobs you gotta pay me now okay and so it worked out it turned out to be great because there were so many synergies in all the HR stuff and all the diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And it's, it's different work, okay? It's different work. But it actually turned out to be great for the company. And when I saw what I was able to deliver for the company, when I say I, my team, not me, it's always a team, I saw where we truly added value. So I would say to embrace it, embrace the unique perspective that you bring we bring something very different, no offense to anybody else in here, but as women of color, we bring something very different, unique, and special, and something that is needed to the workplace. We have a lens like no other. You need to embrace that, make them pay you for what you're bringing, okay? Make them pay you because it's not free, all right? But embrace that. You have a set of eyes that are needed. You have a set of eyes that are needed in this world. And I, I was telling our new players, I met with our, you know, if you've been watching the, the trade, you know, we got some new players the other day. And one, of the first thing, <laughs> and one of the first things I said is, I need those young men to come by my office as soon as they get off the plane. Um, and so we were having a good conversation. And one thing I said is that I am unapologetically, and I said to everybody, I'm unapologetically a black woman. I bring a very different perspective I remember the days when it was seen, when I first started working, it was seen as some kind of threat that I was young, gifted, and black. And it's not a threat. It is a blessing. You being a woman of color is a blessing. Embrace it. Not everybody will embrace it, but those people will eventually move out, move out of the way because more people will realize how valuable your perspective is. And if you're in a place where they don't want to accept that, then you have to rethink where you are. You bring something very unique. Own it, sister. <laughs> own it. Well, thank you for sharing your perspective with us thank today. You. It's thank been a you. true honor, St. Marshall. Thank, thank you. you very much. For oh, your time. you're amazing. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to View from the Top, the podcast, a production of Stanford Graduate School of Business. This interview was conducted by me, Sankalp Banerjee, of the MBA class of 2023. Lily Sloan composed our theme music and Jenny Luna and Michael Riley produced this episode. You can find more episodes of this podcast on our website, gsb.stanford.edu.